All right, well, if you'll turn your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 32, uh, that's going to be our text this morning. I'm always thankful for an opportunity to come and minister to you guys. Uh, he's not here, but I want to thank Pastor Mike for giving me the opportunity to be here and to open up God's Word for you. So Psalm chapter 32, we will read and we'll pray and then we will study it together. A Maskell of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your servant, David for him uh, being carried along, as Peter tells us, by the Holy Spirit to write these words. We know they were honest words from him, uh, probably painful words for him to write. And Lord, we know that we need them this morning. We know that we are sinful people. And Lord, we know that we harbor sin in our hearts often. We let it live in our souls. We just Let it go. We turn our back on it. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves this morning. That we'd be honest with you this morning. That if there is sin, whatever it is, that we would not give safe passage to our sin. That we would not turn a blind eye. That we would not try to cover it up. But Lord, that we would be honest with you. That we would confess our sins. Lord, so that we can experience the blessings of your forgiveness. Uh, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Uh, I do not know every soul in this room. I do not know them like you do. So I pray that you would just feed your people. Uh, Lord, that each one of us here this morning would get what we need out of your word, whether it's encouragement or conviction. Uh, Lord, that you would just provide for your sheep. Uh, that you provide for each one of us. Lord, again, I do pray for other pastors, uh, my pastor, for Pastor Mike, as they preach today. I pray that you would help them to do the same. I pray for myself, that the words of my lips, the meditation of my heart, that it would be pleasing unto you, O God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever done something and tried to cover it up? Some honest people here today. I think we've all been there. We're sinners and we sin. It's kind of our thing. That's what we do. Right? Uh, Sometimes we do things that are sinful, uh, that are wrong, and we know it. And we try to cover it up. And we think nobody's going to find out about this. Uh, We even treat God that way. As if he doesn't know what we've done. As if we can, we can put a smile toward God and act like everything's fine. Um, that is not true. Uh, David here in, in Psalm chapter 32, uh, he's experiencing a lot of pain. Uh, he's, he's been through some things at this point. A lot of Hebrew scholars, I'm not one, 
Right? But a lot of Hebrew scholars think that this was written right after uh, Psalm 51, which you probably know uh, at least some passages of. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. Uh, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Uh, it's a psalm about repentance. Uh, if there's sin in our life, a lot of times we will go uh, to that passage and we will pray that passage and we will be asking God to search our hearts to reveal if there's some sin uh, that we need to be repentant of. Uh, but this is after that. Uh, if, if you look right at the very beginning, he says, uh, or the title is, A Maskell of David. Uh, Maskell uh, comes from probably uh, verse 8. Um, uh, William S. Plumer, a commentarian, he writes this, Maskell is no doubt uh, derived from a verb found in verse 8, which signifies to instruct, be wise, consider, or understand. Essentially, what we have here in Psalm 32 is David's proverb. Uh, this is David's instruction that he wants to give to the reader. And I think we can, each one of us, we can put ourselves into those shoes this morning. This is what David wants us to know about his experiences, like what he had in Psalm 51. So before we go into that, we have to ask ourselves, why did he end up writing Psalm 51 to begin with? Uh, so if you'll turn your Bible with me here to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. Now you guys probably know the majority of the story, right? King David didn't go out to battle like the rest of the kings. Uh, and he's walking, he's pacing on, on the rooftop there at the palace. And he sees somebody. He sees Bathsheba. She's bathing. He lusts after her. He commits adultery with her. She's married. He's married. Uh, and, and then he goes ahead and kills her husband. Right? That, that's, the, that's the majority of what we know. We know like the actual act uh, of David and Bathsheba. But we, we usually don't uh, focus on, we don't think about uh, the cover-up that he tried. It's, it's about as thorough of a cover-up as, as you can get. So let's look here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll just read a little portion of this, starting in verse 5. And the woman conceived, so this is Bathsheba, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. All right, so not much different than what happens today, uh, like a text message kind of a thing. I'm pregnant, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah, that's Bathsheba's husband, the Hittite, and Joab uh, sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing. Now, uh, let's stop there. Cover-up's already beginning. There's deception here. All right. Um, he knows how he's doing. He knows how Joab's doing. He knows how the war is doing. He's the king. All right. So he asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Verse 8, Then David sent to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his own house. So a lot of us would be reading this, and we wouldn't really join these things together. Uh, we wouldn't understand what David is trying to do here. All right, uh, let's think about it. Uriah has been off to war. All right, he's been gone for a while. This isn't just like a little six-month deployment. He's probably been gone for a year, year and a half, traveling out there uh, and unable to communicate with his wife, and now he comes home. What is going to happen when a warrior comes home to his, uh, his bride who he hasn't seen in a year? All right, yes, that's what David is trying to do. We all know what David is trying to do. All right, well, if we do a superficial reading, we might not gather that, but when we look at the details here, he is trying to have uh, Uriah sleep with his wife to be able to cover up this pregnancy. But Uriah doesn't do that. He, he, he doesn't go down to his house, like David said, and wash his feet. He washes his feet there, and he sleeps with everybody else, the servants there. Uh, at the end of verse 9, uh, uh, he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. 
So David's frustrated. And we have verse 10. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? In other words, you've been gone a really long time. Don't you want to go home? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servant of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your souls live? I will not do this thing. Here, Uriah has a whole lot more character in the moment than David. Uh, David didn't go out to war like the other kings. He stays home. Now, there's a little bit of debate about what that means. I think we can at least say that David's not living up to his role as king completely. All right, he should be out there fighting the wars, but he's at home. And Uriah here, he comes home, and he doesn't go home and enjoy his little stay at home and drink and feast with his wife and uh, you know enjoy all the enjoyments of being married. He doesn't do that. He, he says, no, I can't do that. The ark is gone. The ark has been stolen at this point. It's been carried away from the land of Israel. And here he even says that Judah is in booths. In other words, houses are destroyed. Families are wrecked. We're in turmoil, King David. I can't go home and act like everything is fine. Well, David certainly could. That's what he's been doing. All right, verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. All right, so David's thinking to himself, all right, day one, it didn't go according to my plan. Uh, but maybe if he sticks around a couple days, then, then he can go and be with his wife and he can act like this baby that's really David's is actually Uriah's and be able to swing it that way and be able to convince people and cover up that sin that he had done. Verse 13, And David invited him and he ate at his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. So see what David is doing. In the New Testament, drunkenness is sin. In the Old Testament, do you know what it is? It's also sin. Uh, and so King David is, is getting this guy drunk. He's forcing him to sin. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So again, David's like, all right, well, maybe if I get this guy drunk, then he'll you know, lose a little bit of his faculties and remember how much he loves his wife and goes down to his house and, and he can uh, sleep with her. And so this child could be said to be Uriah's. So this is the extent of David trying to cover up his sin. But that's not what happens. He did not go down to his house. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. Imagine that. Now we know a lot of times we know that, yeah, David uh, basically forced Uriah to die. All right, but look what he did. Go out to the hardest fighting where it's the worst and send Uriah there and then put up some kind of a secret message to get everybody to draw back so it's just him. All right, this is about as sure a plan to kill someone as there ever has been. And this is what David, who is known as the man after God's own heart, is doing to cover up his sin. Then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Look what David did to cover up his sin. Slept with Bathsheba. She's pregnant. Well, let's try to get Uriah to be the, uh, think that he's the father. Let's trick him into that. And tries again and again, gets him drunk. Nothing happening there. All right, so let's just kill the guy. That's how far David is willing to go because he doesn't want to repent of his sin and doesn't want anyone else to know. Yet, we have Psalm 32. All right. I want you to ask yourself this morning, how far have you gone to cover up your sin? How far have you gone to cover up your sin toward others? But I think the majority of what we're talking about here this morning is to God. Because this is really what David is writing all this about. He's directing all this to God and about God in Psalm 32. So this is after he repents. All right. But it took him a long time to repent. We know this because the baby was born and he was still in sin. And it was then that Nathan came and said, you are the man and all of that kind of stuff. All right, so it's at least nine months. If not, a lot of scholars think about a year and a half 
right, that David has been living in this, uh, this sin. Because then he takes uh, Bathsheba to be his wife, so it's pretty quick after all the initial stuff, so it looks like it's David's uh, like legitimate baby in that they were married, and Uriah was killed, and he probably looked like a hero to some people for taking in the widow and then giving her uh, a male child. All right, but this is how far David is willing to go for his sin. So a masculine of David. He wants to give some instruction. What did he learn from this? This is what he has for us. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. All right. So in David's mind, what was he harboring? What, what was going on in David's heart when all this was going on, when he's coming up with all these different excuses, coming up with this plan, killing this guy, all of this to cover it up? What was he covering up? Well, the Psalms are beautiful for a lot of different things, but there's a lot of symmetri- uh, symmetry that's happening. The first uh, is that he's going to give three different uh, names, three different ideas about what he did. Uh, and then he's going to talk about three different ways, three different ideas of what God the Father has done for him, and then three different ways on how he was able to obtain that forgiveness from God. All right, so let's look at how he views his sin. All right, David uses these three unique terms for sin, the first being in verse one, transgression. Transgression carries with it the idea of disloyalty. Uh, you can think about uh, your friend betraying you. He transgressed you. She transgressed you. She, she betrayed your trust. Maybe she shared something or he shared something or did something that hurt you. That's what a transgression is. That's how David views his sin uh, there with Bathsheba and all the covering up and all of that. That it was a transgression. It was an act of disloyalty. To who? Well to God. He calls it sin. Now we know the word sin, but it's often an intentional act of missing God's express will. We often talk about it about missing the mark. Well, David understands that. He has made some crucial mistakes. These are not just like, oh, really high bars that that God put there, and it's just really hard for anyone to live up to that. Uh, this is adultery, this is murder, this is lying and deceit. Uh, these are simple things. These are very clear mistakes that David has made. And third, he calls them iniquity. Uh, look here in verse two. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. I like how David even says it in verse five, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So what does it mean? What does that? Yes, there. In some ways, they are synonyms. Uh, yes, it is poetry. But I think he's trying to accomplish something here by giving us three different ways to look at this, because iniquity is a crooked act meant to harm another. All right. So while sin is a mistake, and it's a mistake against God's express will, all right, and, and transgression is an act of disloyalty. Uh, iniquity is usually used in, in reference to intention, that you actually meant to hurt somebody. Uh, you committed iniquity against a person. Uh, you, you did it on purpose. David is a very intelligent believer. Or he believes in God, right? We've seen that all throughout his life. When he's faced against the giant, uh, he, he, what does he do? Does he say, I'm going to defeat you today? No. God is going to defeat you for me, right? Uh, when, when he is uh, anointed to be the king and still on the run, he still knows that God is going to fulfill all those things that he promised to me, right? He's a pretty faithful guy, at least until this point, right? He doesn't make a whole lot of mistakes, but here he's made some serious blunders and he gets it. He understands that his sin, his acts, his mistakes his transgressions, that he did them on purpose. He's not making any excuses, uh, just even from the words that he uses. Now, again, why do you use these three terms? Well, I don't think it's just for poetry, uh, because often he uses repetition as a thing uh, to express uh, some poetic value in what he's writing. 
so he could have just called it sin, 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 like he does in other passages. But I think he's trying to communicate two things. First, I think he's trying to communicate uh, the personal nature of sin. That he transgressed against a person. That he committed iniquity, that he meant to do it, that he meant to sin against a person, against God. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Uh, I mean, you look at just what happened there. She's bathing, very vulnerable. And here comes King David saying, come over to my house. Does that remind you of anything going on in culture today of a me too kind of moment? All right. Yes, he sinned against her. All right. But who has he ultimately sinned against? God. Now, I think that we don't get that a lot. We often think of sin in hypotheticals because we often think of God in hypotheticals. We seldom think about God as a person. We, we think of him as a force. As, as, as a, a, a being somewhere out there, yeah, who knows what we did and we have to repent. But we don't think about the holiness of God. We don't think about the love of God. We don't think about him as a person that we've wronged. Now here, uh, I'm not going to be talking about this as in an unbeliever. Um, how they've sinned and need to repent and come to saving faith in Christ. That's not what this passage is about. Because as I already said, David, a believer, he believes in God. So we're talking about a backsliding Christian, if you will. Or at least a Christian who, who has sinned greatly. All right? And he understands here, David understands that he sinned against a person. Uh, and so when he understands that, that God is not some hypothetical being out there. He is a real person who has real love, who has real emotion, who can be really hurt by his children who sin against him. Then he understands just how bad his sin is. Right? It's one thing to hurt someone or even, even a simple thing, cutting off someone on, on the freeway. All right. If it's a stranger, doesn't feel that bad, right? Oh, what? Oh, sorry, my bad. All right. But what if that was someone you actually know? Have you ever done that? Or like gotten in front of someone and you're like, oh, that's Bob. <laughs> like you, you feel a lot worse, right? When we sin, we need to understand that we're sinning against our father who is a real person and who is really hurt. And, and, and understand that that sin isn't just some small thing. It's not some hypothetical like, yeah, I guess the morality of it is maybe it's wrong. But we need to understand that specific act of disloyalty, of transgression, of iniquity. It hurts our father. It hurts his character. So I think that's one way or one reason why he's giving these three different terms to, to show the personal nature of sin. But I also think that he's doing it to give, no, uh, to give his reader no wiggle room. There's no excuse. There, like You can't look at these three different terms and say, well, well, the thing that I did, that doesn't fit into this. Like he, he uses the main words that we understand about sin. Sin, transgression, iniquity, the iniquity of my sin, right? All of it is there so we don't have any room to be able to be like, well, my thing doesn't fit into those categories. He gives us all the categories and understands that his sins have fallen into each one of those things. And so do ours. So any sin that we would do uh, would fit into one of these categories at the very least. So what did David do with these sins? Look here. Uh, look at verse three. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. So what did he do about the, the sin, this iniquity, these transgressions? He kept silent. He didn't say anything about it. He didn't talk to anybody. Didn't talk to Nathan the prophet. Didn't really talk to Joab about it other than getting him to fall back and have Uriah killed. He didn't talk to his buddy Joab. He didn't, he didn't talk to anybody. He kept silent on it. He didn't speak of his sin to God, at the very least, from nine months to even 18 months, uh, uh, an 18-month period. And he's also the same guy 
who wrote the, uh, one of the psalms that we read this morning in Sunday school, talking about that God would not listen to his prayers if he uh, had sin in his heart. It's the same guy. He knows that. So I think, now this is me maybe going a little bit on a branch here, but I don't think that David's talked to God in a while. I, I don't think that David, the man after God's own heart, has been in prayer during this whole period. Because how could he? He knows what, he's, what he did. He knows the holiness of God. He knows the personal nature of God. And so he's just kept silent. He's not praying. Probably not doing like what he talks about in Psalm 1, about meditating on the word. Right? He isn't like that tree planted beside still water. No, he's silent. He's holding it in. Now, some of us here this morning might be there where we have these sins and we know they're sins, but we're just not talking to God about them. Because that would mean that we have to face some things in our life. Because if you, if you say it, then it's real, right? That's the way we act. But it's real anyways. And it, if, if you're there this morning, this is getting in between you and God. If you're residing that sin in your heart, just like we read about this morning, then God's not listening to those prayers. There, there is that separation. We talk about it oftentimes when we talk about uh, evangelism, how there's a, there's a barrier between a person and God that's called sin. It's true in the life of a Christian too. Now, it's not going to send you to hell because you've been redeemed. But there is... There, there's, there's a blockage there. You can't have communication. You can't have fellowship with the Father right now because there's a barrier between you and Him called sin. And you do something about that. For David, he's not. He's just ignoring it. He's keeping silent. So, what happens to an unrepentant believer who's just holding on to that sin and keeping silent? Conviction. Pressure. Because if you have that Holy Spirit within you, it's not going to stop until you confess that sin to God in convicting you, of sitting on you. Look at what David uses. He uses, again, uh, three different ideas to understand this. But before we do that, um, again, uh, William Plumer, he writes this, Sins never get out of date. There is no statute of limitations for crimes at God's bar or at the bar of conscience. So for David, he's been holding on to this for a long time, at least nine months, where he hasn't been talking to God, where he hasn't uh, confessed, at the very least, he hasn't confessed the sin to God. And it's still, the whole time, eating at him. And maybe, maybe some of us here to this morning are having that sin. It might not be David's sin, uh, but some sin just eating at us. So what was the effect that David felt in his own being? Well, first... He says that my bones, verse 3, my bones wasted away. The idea here is uh, decomposed. He's, he's dying. He feels like he's dying. There's no purpose. There's no life happening in his heart. Uh, he can't fulfill his purpose of living to glorify God because he's got this sin that he's not confessing to God. And so he's just wasting away. Um, you know, you drive through Saskatchewan, you see a lot of these barns. They used to have purpose, right? Um, at one point in time, they were built for a reason, right? They, they had purpose. And now you see them and what's happening? Well, after years and years and years of good use, they, they get abandoned or the, the land gets sold or something happens and they're just left to their, their own demise, really, and they start to fall and... There's no, no use for them except for pretty pictures. Our sin isn't like that. We don't get pretty pictures out of sin. Uh, it just causes us to waste away. No purpose. No life. There's really no hope apart from confession. His bones wasted away. He was decomposing. He says that, uh, including that, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Why do you groan? Because something hurts, right? 
Like you get up in the morning and maybe you make a few groans that you didn't used to do when you got out of bed and you're, oh, my back hurts or something like that. All right, this is a little bit more than that. Uh, this is actually the same word that we get uh, when I was preaching through Psalm 42 for you guys. Um, uh, that idea of why is my soul disquieted within me? That word disquieted means roaring. That's the same word here. Uh, there's so much pain in David's heart that he's, he feels like he's just roaring. He's groaning all day long. There's no relief from that pain. That's what sin does in a Christian's heart. Just causes you pain all day long. And just in case we didn't get the idea, he says, verse four, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. So yeah, it's happening all day and you don't get any relief at night. There's a lot of Psalms that talk about David having a lot of trouble sleeping. And I think some of that was due to this period in his life. You're not going to get any rest. Not when the Holy Spirit keeps on pricking your heart and saying, you need to repent. You need to repent. Confess that sin to God. He's going to forgive you, but you just are unwilling to do so. There's no, there's no relief in the day. There's no relief at night. Your hand was heavy upon me. And the Old Testament hand was a sign of power. Oftentimes, when, your hand, uh, when God's hand was with someone, it was a great thing. It meant that he was uh, you know, ruling the day against his enemies. Or uh, that the hand of God was against, like, uh, for instance, Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria. His hand was against him. Uh, that it was the power of God against the king of Assyria. And the power of God won out. Right? No, no, uh, no contest there. Uh, and then to think about that, the power of God was heavy on me. Again, the man after God's own heart, who God has been for in all these different ways, against Goliath, against the Philistines, against the Hittites, against all these, all these people. And now the hand of God, the power of God is sitting on him day and night because of his conviction. What did that cause? Well, this is how I felt to the shepherd. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Uh, David, David knew what it meant to, to feel heat exhaustion, being out there in the field with the sheep as a young boy. He understood that you need water in order for you to survive, uh, in order for you to have that strength to continue to protect those sheep, to lead those sheep. And this is how it feels for him. It's like summertime. A lot hotter in Israel than it is here. And, and uh, dry land, dry climate, and he feels like all his strength is gone. Uh, it doesn't take long for me to get worn out. In Moose Jaw, we had sidewalk days this week. And even just after, what, like an hour and a half of walking around the sidewalk days, it was hot, and I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> all right? We know that we, we need some water. We need it to be a little bit cooler for us to feel comfortable. And there's no chance of David being comfortable with this sin. It might be convenient in some ways to harbor that sin, but for David, it was extremely painful. So, can you relate? Can you relate this morning to what David's experiencing with holding that sin and with giving it safe harbor? Are you being silent? David didn't stay that way. Uh, he was forgiven. And he knew that only God's forgiveness could give him that relief. He says in verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Again, David is going to use three terms to help us understand. Three terms of sin, three terms of this idea of being forgiven. The first is the word forgiven. Uh, the word literally means lifted off. Now we referenced Pilgrim's Progress this morning in Sunday School. Uh, if you've read that book, probably the, the, the main concept that you came away with remembering is, is Christian, little Christian, and he has, uh, he has something on him, right? He has a burden on his back, uh, a pain that he's always feeling. And, and it's not until he goes to the cross, until that burden rolls off his back when he understands his need for Christ, it rolls off his back, and where does it go? 
into the tomb, never to be seen again. That's what David needs. That's what David experienced. He's been forgiven. That burden, that pain that caused his bones to waste away, that caused him groaning day all day long, that caused the, the power of God to feel heavy on him day and night and his strength to be gone. That burden is lifted off of him. He doesn't have to face that burden anymore. What else? What other ideas does he use to express this idea of being forgiven? He says, whose sin is covered. Uh, Now, this was the idea of atonement in the Old Testament, like the, the blood of the sacrifices covering one's sin. He knows that his sin has been covered. Atonement, expiation of sin, that it's not going to be what he's going to say here next. The third idea, that the Lord, uh, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Counts no. That's a financial term. And it's very similar to what the New Testament uses for imputation. That it was uh, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to the Christian. It's been put in your account. And so for him, David, he's saying that because I've experienced this forgiveness, uh, because um, uh, my sin has been covered, it's been atoned for, that the Lord is going to not count that sin against me. It's not going to be a, a deficit on my account. It's been taken out of that. Now, I love this because there, there are things out there in theology, uh, like the New per, uh, Paul perspective about trying to change some ideas about justification. Very important word for us as Christians. And they, they would say, well, you aren't going to find that idea in the Old Testament. Well, here it is. It happens with Abraham, that it was accounted for him for righteousness, that he believed in God. And here we see it with David, too, that the Lord counts no sin against him. So here we have justification. God's forgiveness means that one's sins have been atoned for. The lifting of one's guilt, you don't have to feel that anymore. And he makes you righteous. Because uh, we know if, if it wasn't for God doing that, uh, David, he's going to go down in history as, as a murderer, as an uh, adulterer, uh, possibly even as a rapist, if you want to view it that way. Um, that's what David's going to be known for, apart from the grace and the mercy that he experiences from God. Now, what do we know him as? Well, the man after God's own heart, the psalmist, the worshiper of God, a devout man. But he still had those things in his life. But God forgave him of those things. What did that give for David? What does forgiveness produce? Well, if we're catching on to the theme here in uh, Psalm 32, there are three things. The first is in verse 1. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Very similar to how he starts Psalm chapter 1. This idea of being blessed, which we can say blessed. We don't have to say blessed. I don't know how that creeps into our vocabulary. I almost did it today. I might have done it today. All right, but he's blessed. He's happy. That's all it means. He's just happy. He's experiencing joy. Why? Why could he do that? After all the stuff that he did, aren't you just going to feel guilty for the rest of your life? No, because of the forgiveness that he's experienced from God, he can have joy and happiness because he can experience freedom from that guilt. If, if, if that guilt were to stay on you, the pain that you would experience for the rest of your life, it's, it's why it's so heartbreaking when you see unrepentant people, um, when we're getting out of the category of believers, we're talking about unsaved people. That's why it's so heartbreaking. Yes, it's the eternal damnation. Yes, it's because Christ is being robbed of glory in their life. It's all those things, but also just for the person. Can you imagine the pain of knowing that all of your faults are just going to stay there? That there's no no relief from, from your hardships? Heather was just telling me about someone from her workplace who, who, who said something to the effect of, uh, I'm no good uh, because of her past failures and things that she's experienced in her life. And she doesn't have any relief from Christ. Believers can have that. 
You could experience joy in that freedom that those things aren't going to have to weigh on you forever. So there's happiness. There's also safety. Look in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Uh, The idea here, some people get this verse very wrong. All right. Uh, It's not that God is so far away that they're never going to reach him. The, The they there is the people who've experienced forgiveness and the waters like a calamity is not going to reach them. There's safety in being forgiven by God. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So even when the enemies are all around, that's something David knew very well. That was like his every day. There there was some enemy out there trying to get him. All right, but we also face that. We have a lot of enemies. It's called sin. It's called flesh. It's called uh, the pride of life. All of those things that are out to get us, like uh, even for Cain, Uh, What God says to him, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Uh, Sin is out to get you. And we have those enemies. And we can find a safe place because of the forgiveness of God. We can experience his deliverance. We can sing like Martin Luther, mighty fortress is our God. And I love what he says here at the end of verse 7. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Uh, Your Bible might read that a little bit differently. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, maybe even a little bit better of a translation would be songs of redemption. That's, that, that's what the words literally mean. And, and David, who is a songwriter, uh, he, he is filled with this joy, the, this mercy that he's experienced from God and being forgiven, so much so that when the, like, all these enemies are surrounding him, he feels as if there's just songs everywhere about redemption that he's experienced through God. I love that. I, I find that very beautiful uh, because a lot of times we, we face our guilt and even there's an internal voice within us of our sin that, that says you're no good, uh, that, that says you're just a failure. You're never going to be a good Christian like that other person. Uh, you're never going to be like whoever. Uh, here, because of what uh, David has experienced in his forgiveness, he can say, yes, you surround me with songs of redemption. All right, so that's what forgiveness produces in us. It produces happiness, safety, joy, and, and, and shouts of worship. That's really what those are, songs of redemption, because who gets the glory out of that? It's not David. It's God. So worship. Let's, let's talk about how he obtained that. Again, three things. Verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you. You got to say it. Uh, you got to inform. That, that's what acknowledge means. Inform, cause to know. Now, again, God knows everything, so he knows it. But he, he wants that, that, that display of faith from us to express that to him, to acknowledge that sin, to not cover. Look what he says. I did not cover my iniquity. So when he was keeping silent and trying to come up with all these different excuses to, so that no one will know that I did these things, here he's saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to try to cover up these things. I'm not going to make excuses to a holy God. There's no concealing. There's no hiding. There's no sugarcoating this. He, he, he expresses the full extent of the sin to God. Um, kind of reminds me of when like, you have to say sorry to a friend. Um, you, you don't just say sorry, right? You got to be specific about it. Or at least I do with my wife. Uh, that when I say sorry, she usually asks, what are you sorry about? <laughs> and then I have to express how I was wrong. That, that's what David is saying here. There's no sugarcoating. There's no just putting a, I'm sorry for my sin, God, amen. No, you got to express the extent of this. What did you do? What did you do against a holy God? What did you do against a loving father? Express that. Uh, with a contrite heart. And here he uses another term. He confesses. uh, He says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Another way to say that, just the dirtiness, wickedness of my sin. Confess. Uh, In the Old Testament, it's a little bit different than how we might interpret it. It had more of the idea of repent. There's, There's usually a turning action in confessing. Uh, you confess the wrong, uh, 
but like in many places, like in Second Chronicles 5, verses 24 and 26, there's also an expression of, yes, there's wrong, and I'm sorry about those things, but I also confess that you are God. There, there's, uh, it quickly turns from the sin to worship uh, because of his nature. So God's forgiveness and favor is waiting for those who admit their sin without excuses and turn toward him. And now we have the miskill. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Uh, a little bit of a threat there too. This is the king talking. And he says, I got my eye on you. All right, he wants, he wants these people to get it. He wants us to get it. All right, so what does he want us to get? Verse 9, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. All right, what is he saying with this? He says, don't wait. Don't put it off. Because eventually, you're going to repent. It's going to happen. If you're a believer, if you truly believe in God, then that Holy Spirit is going to win out. Why are you experiencing this pain? Why are you holding on to it? Why not repent right now and be done with it so you can experience all the joys? And you can be free from that, that, the hurts and the pains. You're going to be like a horse. It's going to be turned. No matter what, might as well do it willingly. Might as well do it uh, with, with a loving heart toward God. Don't wait. Do it willingly. Kind of a, you want the hard way or the harder way. Because eventually it's going to get done. Then, what else does he say? Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. How can he say that when he's such a lousy sinner? Well, you got to live in that identity that God has given you. Not in the guilt, not in the pain that you've experienced when you've sinned. But you're righteous. You're upright in heart. Not because of who you are, but because of what God has done in your life. So find your identity in that forgiveness and you will be fulfilled. You'll be glad in the Lord. You'll rejoice O righteous, and you'll shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So, is there something between you and God today? I realize that you know, I've been here many times and uh, know most of your testimonies, I'll put it that way. And so I realize that um, to the best of my knowledge, I'm probably talking to believers here. Is there sin? Just ask it like that. Is there sin that you're holding on to? And, and it doesn't, like again, I'm not talking about confession to others. I'm talking about with God. Is there something that you're just holding on and you're keeping from him? And you're saying, no, I'm going to hold on to this. It's more convenient for me. I'm not, I don't want to admit these things to God. He already knows. Just like David, he's, he's, he's waiting here to forgive. The forgiveness is there. All, all one has to do is acknowledge to not cover and to confess. And it's sitting there waiting for you. Uh, this is what it looks like for the prodigal son to come home. Uh, the loving father waiting there. Forgiveness is waiting. Restoration is waiting to put a ring on your finger and a robe on your back. The loving father is waiting there. So are you feeling like David in verses 3 and 4? Are you boasting in Christ and what he did to obtain your redemption? Are those songs of redemption uh, just filling your soul and it feels like they're just surrounding you? Or are you still feeling the, that grief over sin? Because you don't have to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that I don't have to come up with anything clever. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do that. Not something that could reach people's hearts. Uh, that all I have to do is read your word and show it to your people and that you do the work. Uh, Lord, I know you've done a work in my heart uh, with this passage as I've studied this week and past weeks. 
Lord, I thank you for what you've done in my heart. I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters here to experience that same joy. Uh, Lord, the question isn't if we have any sin, it's since we have sin. Uh, We are sinners. We do it every day. Uh, So it might not be a systematic thing in that we are constantly doing one uh, secret action or something that uh, maybe even we're not knowledgeable about, but there's just a repetitious nature to our sin. might not be that. It might be something that we did on the way in today. Uh, It might be something that we we said yesterday or or even this past week. I pray that we would repent of that. Lord, we know that that's not going to change our status with you. We know that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed, we've been justified. It is our standing with you. Um, but Lord, we do know that we still sin, that we still have the, the old man, as Paul says, and we battle with him. And Lord, I pray that we would repent of the sin that we do face every day. Uh, Lord, the, the sin that does so easily beset us, and I pray that we would run the race, that we'd live our life glorifying you, Uh, that we'd be free from the grief, the pain, and even the discipline from you regarding our sin. We know that we are children of you if we have believed in Jesus Christ. We are your children, and just as I discipline my children when they misbehave, you do the same for believers. And Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters wouldn't have to feel that, that they would just be able to feel your loving embrace because they've already repented of those sins. Uh, Lord, that we'd be doing this every day. I I pray that we would not just uh, give you something today and repent over it and call it good for weeks on end, Uh, but that we'd be thinking about this idea, that we would take our sins seriously, that we would not deal with it in hypotheticals because you are not a hypothetical God. You are a holy, loving, gracious, merciful God, a being full of wisdom and power, And when we sin, we grieve you. And I pray that we would understand that, that when we commit these things, it is, yes, it is treason against an almighty God, but it is also a trespass against our loving Father. And that we would not be willing to let that just stay in our hearts, um, but that we would confess it, that we would acknowledge it, as David says, so we can move on to sing songs of redemption Uh, to be filled with praise and adoration for you, for what we've experienced, the joy that we'd be able to say, blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, whose transgressions are forgiven. I ask this in the name of the one who has granted that for me, who, who did all the work necessary for my redemption. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.